Hello and welcome to Polls, PF and Prosecco. We are the podcast that answers your equestrian lifestyle and training questions. I'm Katie Gilmore and joining me is Grand Prix dressage rider, trainer, pole work specialist and published author Tanya Grantham of Inspire Dressage. In this episode, we will be testing our technology and welcoming a special guest from afar. We'll be finding out how Tanya's horses are and we'll be answering your training questions, all while enjoying a rather nice glass of Prosecco. Tanya, what are we drinking today? So today we are drinking Chapeldown, which is England's leading producer of sparkling wine, well of wine and sparkling wine. Um, and it's from grapes grown in the southeast of England, and supposedly it's going to be pineapple, grapefruit, and elderflower. Excellent. So let's have a go. Let's see if that is what it is. So this also was very kindly gifted to us from a listener. It was. So thank was. you very much, Simone. Thank you, Simone. Right, ready for the pop? Oh, it's a good pop. It's quite a gentle pop. It was quite gentle. It eased, but yeah, I'm liking the steam very coming off smooth. the top of that. It's very steamy. I should add, this is the first time I've actually had a drink in a week. So (laughs) that's a fairly long time for me, to be fair. (laughs) So it might go straight to my head. Excellent. The rest of the episode should be great fun. (laughs) Right. Well, it smells nice. It does smell nice. It does smell fresh. It smells really fresh. Reminds me of a spring evening. Honestly. That's quite poetic. (laughs) Anyway, cheers. cheers. That's Mm. nice. That's really crisp. It is nice. And it's not too fizzy. No. Uh, it, actually, the bottle describes it as gently effervescent. Well, I think the bottle's right. Yeah. It's not too busy at all. Are you it gently nice. effervescent? <laughs> Definitely not at the moment. <laughs> I don't think I've got any bubbles in me whatsoever. Yum. Very drinkable. So let's talk about my favourite. How's Norman doing? Oh, Norman's good. He's really good. He's, um, I think he might have grown. Oh dear. No, I want him to say the size he is. <laughs> no, he's a really nice size. Probably about, it must be 16 hands now, maybe 16 one. Okay. Very, very short coupled, obviously. Um, but yeah, I was tacking up the other day and I thought, oh, you're actually like a actual real sized horse now. Because for ages he was sort of the littlest. And I don't know, when you've got Igloo around who's 17 hands of absolute hench material, mm. you uh, you get a bit warped into what's big and what's small. But yeah. um, no, he really is coming into his own. I mean, he'll be six this year, so... You know, I think he has kind of settled out, finished growing and stuff. And yeah, he's um, he's getting much, much stronger. He suddenly, he does suddenly feel like a little grown up to ride. He's got the hang of his shoulder in. He's got his leg gills. He's got his walk canters. Um, and I mean, I'm still making it really, really fun. And he thinks they're all amazing when he gets to them. But he's starting to kind of really, I mean, he always enjoyed his schooling. But like the other day I was doing some lateral work. And when I finished doing the lateral work, he sort of tried to do his big trot. It's like he knows Bless he's done him. something well and he wants to show off. Yeah. So he's sort of really, really enjoying it, I think, now. And kind of, I think he's feeling much better and stronger in his body. And he sort of wants to perform now. So, yeah, next uh, next plan, I need to get him out some outings. So he's going to do some arena highs and things and rub other people and then uh, get him out to some shows, I think. Oh, that's exciting. Well, it's sunny today, so it's making me think, yes, let's go out and compete. When it's probably rain next week, I'll change my mind again. But <laughs> but you're going to wait for the spring with him anyway, aren't you? I think so, yeah. I might take him out to a couple and just kind of see, but um, I really want to take him a few different places. He's only been to a couple of venues and a couple of friends' yards, so okay. I'm quite lucky where I am. There's lots of venues around me and they do mm. arena hire, so I think this year's just about education, really. Uh, whether he does competing, training, shows how well he does competing doesn't really matter. It's about showing him different places and stuff. And, uh, yeah, he's just got to learn to concentrate when there's other things going on as opposed to shout at everybody. Well, he's off. only small. He is only small. <laughs> and he has bits, so. 
Oh, yes. Yes. So maybe actually spring might be a bit interesting as all the mares start coming into season as well. Yeah, we'll see, we'll we'll see. If, like me, you are developing a soft spot for Norman, make sure you follow Tanya on social media where she shares her life as a professional rider and trainer. Pop onto Facebook where you'll find her as Inspired Dressage Official or on Instagram as Inspired Dressage. Now, if technology is serving us well, we have a special guest joining us from afar. This very special lady qualified in law in Birmingham in 2003, managing a livery yard while she studied. She has specialised in equine law since 2010, representing clients at hearings up to and including the High Court. Her clients range from Olympic gold medalists to first-time horse owners, and she leaves no stone unturned in offering legal guidance and representation. A keen competition rider, she has competed in all disciplines and has her own breeding programme. She is Jackie Dark of Equine Law UK. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I have had a I've had a really good snoop around your website actually, and the areas you cover are really quite vast. So tell us what equine law would encapsulate. So mainly I'm a litigator, so mainly my my workload will involve disputes. So that could be a dispute in terms of ownership. It can be a dispute where you bought a horse and, uh, you know, we all know about the disputes with buying and selling um, that are becoming increasingly um, the more, there are more and more of them. Um, it could be a dispute in terms of um, a, a, a marital breakdown, so there will then be disputes over ownership and also value of horses. It could be a dispute with your vet where you've had a vetting done and the, that you don't feel that the vet has performed how they should or advised you how they should. Um, so mainly it will be disputes. Um, there are other elements to the work. So I represent riders um, when there are issues with governing bodies. So, for example, professional riders who may have had banned substance issues um, at competitions. Um, then there are other regulatory areas. So I represent farriers where they have issues with their regulator who are called the FRC, the right. Farriers Registration Council. Um, so it, there are parts of regulatory law there to help professionals. There is the dispute work, which is more of the court work. And then there is the, the drafting work. So I draft all sorts of contracts for high value and low value horses and ponies, leases, um, more popular now leases than loans. Um, people have realised that leasing actually is quite a good idea. Mm. Um, so the, 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 it, it, it's a really broad area of work um, and, and sort of no day is the same ever. <laughs> I'm sure. You do seem to log on to Facebook now and there are so many questions about what can I do about this? What can I do about you know, about that in particular in the buying and selling of horses. Yeah. Tell me the difference between buying from a dealer, a private sale or a sales livery. Okay. So when you buy from a dealer, you have the protection of the Consumer Rights Act 2015. And that's the act that applies when it's a a business sale. And a business sale is defined as a sale that's in the course of a person's craft, trade or profession. Okay. So where the person is selling as a business seller, you have this extra extra protection. And the protection um, is in the form of implied terms. And the implied terms are a fitness for purpose and satisfactory quality. So what most people would be coming to me and saying would be, Jackie, I bought this horse. I bought it for my, let's say, daughter or mother-daughter share, 
and it's it rears it's absolutely not suitable there's a mother daughter share it's not fit for purpose and i purchased it from a dealer now what the act gives you is a sh- what's called a short term right to reject okay so within 30 days from purchase that's your that's where your rights are at their highest as a purchaser or a consumer um, you can go back to the dealer, and I should add in there, you have to be a consumer. That couldn't be a business-to-business sale. It, it's, a, uh, okay. it's a consumer to business. So that wouldn't work if you were um, a riding school buying from a dealer, because that would be no. business-to-business. But what business. if you're okay. a professional rider, but you were buying personally? So my business is obviously horses, but yeah. if I was buying for myself, would I be protected? Yeah. But if I was buying for a client or buying to sell or not... So if you were buying it for, let's say you've got children yeah. and you were buying it for your daughter as a daughter's pony, then yeah. yes, you could you could certainly argue that would be a private okay. purchase and you were buying in the capacity as a consumer. Yeah. You would obviously be a highly skilled consumer and that would have a play on the evidence okay. because the seller would be saying, you know, she had an opportunity to see the pony, she had it vetted. And you so you would be armed with a set of skills that some consumers don't, but you would still have the protection of that legislation. Okay. Um, so you have the short-term right to reject where the burden is on the seller to prove that the horse was fit for purpose or of satisfactory quality. So you've got this 30-day period and it's 30 days from the horse being delivered. It's not 30 days from you paying your money or 30 days from the vetting. It's 30 days from delivery. Um, and then after that period, there's still a right to reject, but the, the, the rules become a little bit different up until a period of six months where you still have this right to reject and then it's after six years that your statute barred from bringing a claim against the seller in respect of wow. a pony. And I have had claims in their sixth year. Wow. Um, there are not many claims would succeed at that point. The, the claim I'm talking about was um, a jumping pony that had had a marble inserted it, into its uterus and they found out in the sixth year. Um, and what they'd done is planned. They bought it to breed from eventually. And because of the marble, it couldn't, they couldn't breed from it. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, I see. So how does that differ with a private seller? So a private seller, uh, the, the Consumer Rights Act doesn't apply. So with a private sale, your recourse is either in breach of contract. Um, more and more now people are preparing purchase agreements. So there are some, usually some written contractual terms. Uh, verbal terms are also legally binding contractual terms, but then, of course, it's his word again, one person's word against another. Um, the other recourse in a private sale would be misrepresentation. So misrepresentation has four elements. It has to be a representation of fact. It has to be a representation upon which a person has relied or the, the purchaser has relied. So it has to have happened before purchase. Um, it has to be a representation um, which has been made in order to induce the purchaser to purchase, and it has to be false. So there, there are four hurdles to get over. That does apply in a private sale. It applies in a business sale as well. It's often difficult to prove misrepresentation. You can use the advertisement. You can use, you know, people text and email more and more now when you're buying horses. So people will say, you know, look at this WhatsApp. She said it was safe. Actually, it's a complete disaster. Um, but but ultimately, it can be pretty difficult to prove misrep. Okay. And I've heard the term banded around of caveat emptor, particularly yeah. with private sales. How would that yeah. come into it? So buyer beware does apply to a, a private sale and the burden is on the purchaser mm-hmm. to make sure that they have 
done everything that they can to ensure that the animal that they're buying is what they want. But what you have to take into account ultimately is that the seller knows the animal very well and the buyer gets probably an hour or maybe two hours to see the animal and make that decision. So there is still a burden on the seller to properly represent the horse and to tell the truth. Um, but the burden then goes back to the buyer because they have to ask the questions. There's no responsibility on a seller to say, oh, by the way, yeah. this horse ribs mm. or by the way this horse box walks or whatever yeah. that burden is on the on the purchaser to be saying to that person you know with the checklist and there's a checklist that I produce because so many people come to me and say oh you know you've got a checklist that we can use to go and see this horse or a pony and you need to take it with you on, on your clipboard and go through it and I know it sounds a bit sort of geeky but it, it you know later on it might be something that you're relying on as a purchaser and it needs to go through those questions because you've got to ask them as a private purchaser or with a private sale. Um, otherwise, if you haven't asked the question, the seller hasn't got to disclose anything to you, you know, and it could be bucking, rearing and, and everything that you don't want. Of course. Um, do you have that on your website, your list? Yes. Brilliant, because uh, I'm about to be looking for a horse myself, and I think that might come in handy. <laughs> and sales livery. So, you know, I, I was just thinking, because there are always so many questions about buyers' rights with horses. Um, and we had quite a few come in. I was trying to amalgamate them all together. But the three main things seem to be the dealer, the private sale, and then sales livery. So what are the legalities around buying a horse through sales livery? So when it's being sold on a sales livery yard, um, the, the, whoever there is the sales livery person becomes the selling agent. Right. Um, the selling agent, um, agency law is quite complex, but basically the selling agent is, is able to appoint to take a step back because whoever is the principal to the contract and the principal will be the owner. Um, the owner is responsible for everything that the selling agent says about the horse. And that's where it comes in, in terms of the owner. They need to be really clear and make and be very careful and make clear to the selling agent how they are representing their horse to the purchaser. Mm. Because if, that, if, the, if the owner or the principal to the contract hasn't completely filled in the selling agent, in terms of the horse's background, its clinical history, its competition history, then they're not armed with the correct information to tell the end purchaser. Right. And the end purchaser ultimately will go straight back to the crit principal to the contract. They won't come through the selling agent. There is a way of bringing a selling agent into, into a claim, and that's through um, an area of law called negligent misstatement. Um, so that would be where the selling agent has negligently made a misstatement about a horse. So, for example, if I'd said to my selling agent, um, this horse, um, I don't know, this horse Winsucks, and the selling agent didn't disclose that and that it was a question that was raised, that would be a negligent misstatement. Okay. But still as, still as the seller, I'm bound by those words and those statements that have been made by the selling agent. So one thing that I would say to owners that send their horses to selling agents is to make sure you speak mm. to the purchaser before the purchase goes ahead so that you can tell them everything that you need to tell them about the horse. That's really interesting. The other um, questions that often come up are buying unseen. 
Um, and I think um, distance selling laws apply with that. Yes, so it used to be called the distance selling regulation. It changed um, a few years ago. Um, it's now called the consumer contract regulation. It's not quite, uh, it's not as self-evident as it used to be. Um, but what it means, it's a consumer to business sale. So this isn't anything to do with private private sales. If I buy a horse from a dealer and I buy it unseen, I could have seen a video or a photo, but I, I purchased it unseen. And the important thing to remember there is it can't have been vetted. Because right. if your vet has been as your agent, then arguably you've had an opportunity through your agent to physically inspect the horse. So if you don't see it, you just see it from, buy, buy it from a video or a photograph or an advert, then from the time it arrives at your yard, you've got 14 days to send it back. And it can be for any reason. You might not like the colour. You might have changed your mind. You might have just decided it's not for you. You have to, within 14 days, notify in writing the seller that you've, you, you're going to return it and you want your money back. You wouldn't believe how many sellers will then say, absolutely not, that doesn't apply to me and you're not having your money back, sadly. The other uh, questions that often come up are around livery agreements and contracts on yards. I ran my yard as a livery yard for a little while and I know you've run a livery yard as, as well. And I, I do get very annoyed when I read posts about people not paying or yards that aren't insured, but also where it says, I pay monthly, but I don't have a contract. Can I just leave? Now, it's my understanding that would be an implied contract because you've been paying monthly. Mm -hmm. But what else should be included in a livery contract? If you're going to look around a yard, what would you expect to see in the contract? So if I'm wearing my livery hat now um, and I'm entering a yard as a livery, or if I was drafting a contract for a livery, which, which wouldn't usually be the way, it would normally be the livery yard owner that would be drafting the contracts and handing them out. But if I was a livery and I was looking at what I would expect to see of a livery contract, I would, I'd expect to see what the cost is going to be. I would expect to see exactly what I'm going to receive for my money. And that needs to be really very detailed. You know, how are they mucking it out? Are they skipping it out? Are they night feeding it? Does it include the feed? Does it include supplements? Do they tend to the farrier? Do they tend to the vet? Do they bring it in? Which paddock does it go in? When? How can they change that? I would want to, I would want everything to be in there because it avoids a dispute mm. ultimately. What frustrates me most with livery disputes and, and often telephone calls that I receive will be an owner ringing me and saying, can you just advise me, please? Um, I My horse has had an accident in the field and I'll say, okay, so how's it had the accident? Well, it's got stuck in its fencing okay did you put it into the field that day yes i did and are you a diy liver and you control that field and it's been in that paddock before well yes i i did um and the thing is we all have to take responsibility for our own horses and not just think it's the responsibility of the livery yard owner yeah um and so i think that the contract really needs to be clear as to everything it includes what's the insurance position do you as a horse owner have to be providing public liability insurance or is that down to the, the livery yard owner? Um, you know, what happens in the event that stables flood? Have they got other stables? What happens if a strangles horse comes in? Have they got the facilities to isolate? Um, so I think it needs to go into a great deal of detail. Um, from the livery yard owner's point of view, that there are things in there that the livery might not want to be in there, such as 
it's often useful for a yard owner to ensure one that they hold the passports. Yes, that's um, um, that's a, a requirement, isn't it? From DEFRA, it is requirements by law. But you would be surprised how many livery yards don't hold the passports. Um, but the reason that livery yard owners need to hold the passport is because where people get into trouble with paying their livery, it does ultimately give the livery yard owner an option to sell or rehome the horse because, of course, you can't sell it without or move it without mm. the passport. That's right. Um, there's also something that you can put into an agreement for the yard owner to say that at, at a certain point, once a debt has accrued and a certain period of time has passed, that they can sell a horse or rehome a horse where it's effectively been abandoned by an owner. And I have lots of cases. Things go in patterns, and I've found over the years since I've been doing this, more and more horses are being abandoned by their livery yard owners because they can't afford them. Right. And that leaves the yard owner in a difficult position because they've got a horse that's costing them every day. They've usually got no passports. They don't quite know what to do. And then they have no livery agreement, which means that they don't have the right to sell or rehome. And they then have to take, go to the recourse of the courts, which is expensive. It's really to, to, to deal with what they can do. Mm. Would they not just put an abandonment notice, though, and then take ownership? So an abandonment notice only rely, actually applies to a horse that's genuinely been abandoned. So, for example, a horse that's fly grazing with, with travellers. Right. Um, it won't apply where somebody has previously been a livery and they suddenly just abandon because they can't afford it. It, it. It's not, sadly, that doesn't apply to that situation. Looking at payment of livery, obviously having a contract in place instructs you when you need to pay, how much you need to pay and exactly what you're paying for. What about people that are on livery but they don't have that contract um, and they haven't paid a deposit who's then responsible for putting things right if the horses I don't know eaten fencing or broken things in a stable well if the livery yard owner hasn't put, put anything in place to say that you must replace fencing and arena fencing and mirrors if they get broken etc then then they would have to ask a judge you know who's in the right should you be should that livery yard owner be replacing that or is that in with the livery and I suspect that the judge would say it would all be on a case-by-case basis but Mm. I suspect the judge would say to the livery yard owner you're a business you've decided not to put anything in place in terms of the contract and so the livery has assumed that her livery fee includes for the repair of damages, etc. And I think that's an argument that, that could easily be run mm. if the livery, if there's no livery agreement. Um, if there's a deposit that's been taken, obviously, that would be a deposit in respect of unpaid livery or the costs of making things good. Um, so I, I think that any livery yard owners that are out there and they're not providing livery contracts are sort of leaving themselves wide, wide open to, to trouble. Absolutely. I would recommend any yard owners would go onto the Livery List, Livery Owners Facebook page. The lady that runs Livery List has a whole battery of contracts and things like that that you can use as templates. But yeah. I'm guessing ideally running a contract past you would be a good idea too to make sure that everything is included. It would, but just having a contract that you can draft that fits your yard is a really good start. Absolutely. If somebody has paid, you've asked me this twice and I haven't answered it. If somebody's paid a month in advance, 
you would and there's no contract you would expect that you can use that month to have a period of time to find somewhere else if you're asked to leave um so where there's no notice period i think that you could say well i paid a month in advance so mm. i expect to stay until my money has expired you do have livery yard owners that can be really unreasonable and say you've got 48 hours to rehome your four horses and people will ring me and say i just don't know what to do I guess it depends on why they've asked you to leave, though. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. if, you've, if you've been caught red-handed thieving from someone else's area <laughs> of the tack room, yeah. probably yeah. being asked to leave with good reason. But, you know, absolutely, when it's just something that, you know, you looked at someone wrong, then yeah. you can understand and them being very upset. There's that there that, you know, it's not their fault. But there's always two sides to every story. That's certainly something I've learned over the years. Absolutely. We've got a question about a made-to-measure saddle that was made for a horse. The owner of the horse was never happy with the saddle. They called the saddler back because it was slipping. The saddler reflocked it. There was a lot of toing and froing with a balance strap being added. And before the year was out, she stated again to the saddler that she wasn't happy. The saddler said they'd go back to the manufacturer and exchange it but then ghosted her and will not reply to any messages. What can she do and where does she stand? Okay, so how long has she had the saddle just, now? Uh, just over a year. Okay, and when did she first complain about the saddle? Within three months. Okay, so assuming that the purchaser is a private purchaser, a consumer, she would have the protection of the Consumer Rights Act, which gives her... a. I mean, it gives her a protection for six years, but there's a level of protection for six months where she has a right to reject. Right. Um, so she, within that first six months, would have had the right to reject the saddle and to expect... they ha- the, the, the saddler would have one opportunity to repair, which is usually when the saddler will come out and do the refit, but you wouldn't expect to be using balance straps. I, I would I would see that there could be a reflocking and a re you know, a refit, mm. particularly if the horse has changed shape. But I wouldn't be expecting there to be balance straps and things like that. Um, but but it, ultimately, these cases are so difficult um, to advise on with little information because it could be a young horse that's hugely changed shape. Um, but within that six-month period, buyer would have had the opportunity to reject and it would that would have been her best time to have gone back and said, actually, you've done the refit, it hasn't worked, I'm now going to write to you with what's called the formal letter before action and I'm going to reject this saddle. Now, after a year, she still does have a right to reject and there will obviously be the history that she can go through with the chronology of what's happened. Um if the saddler is ghosting her, if it's a master saddler, I would recommend that she goes to um, the SMS, the Society of Master Saddlers, mm-hmm. um, because they have a complaint system where they will help her. Um, so if it is a master saddler, and let's assume it is for the yeah. purposes today, then they do have a good complaint system and they are very reactive to customers that come to them about their members um, and they'll be able to help. So let's talk about legalities around riding for people. And I'm referring here specifically to professional riders, where it is their job to ride horses for an owner, whether it is just to score them or to compete. What kind of mitigations would you expect to have in place there? So, I mean, it's definitely important that the the rider-owner relationship has a contract in place. 
I often get calls from riders and owners and they'll say, I find it really awkward because I get on so well with my owner that I don't want to make it awkward by saying that I feel that we need a written agreement in place. But equally, if it goes wrong, you really do need that because everybody misses out, the horse loses out, and it it can be really quite disastrous. So I would expect to see, kind of similar to the livery agreement, in that you need it needs to be bespoke to, to that particular partnership and to those people, um, to the professional in terms of you know where they're driving this horse to go and what they've agreed with the owner in terms of how how do they input with that? Do they sit down every quarter and have a meeting about where the horse competes? Um, and about you know where where their intentions are or their aims for the horses. Um, so I think it needs to be quite clear from the beginning as to what what everybody's agreed. So what are the aims for the horse? Is it that their horse is being aimed to get to small tour before the horse is sold? Um, or is this a horse that is genuinely being bought for the rider to progress the rider's career um, for the horse to go as far as it can? Um, it would it would need to agree what happens if one party wants to sell. So, you know, a lot of older owners will say, I need to have something in there, Jackie, for if something happens to me, because I appreciate that, the, you know, some riders can't afford to just keep that horse if something happened. Mm. And so they, they put a plan into place and often that will then be written into the will as well so that everybody's protected. Um, it my agreement's go into detail such as can the owner go to competitions what are the provisions for those competitions you know is the owner expected to come and help and, and often in the smaller relationships they are um it would need to deal with insurance i've had rarely but i've had a few cases where riders have been hurt and right. they want to go back to the owner to say you know you, it's your horse under the Animals Act, you are responsible. And actually, I'm now really, really poorly or I can't ride again. And so I um, need to, to, to claim from the insurance. Whoever insures and what that insurance cover is for needs to be clear. And my suggestion always to riders is that it's the rider that should take out professional insurance so that yep. there's cover in case anything happens. Um, it needs to go through what happens if you know, if the rider is poorly and can the owner and rider then elect a new rider to to ride the horse and compete it going forwards, because usually the rider will have an ownership share and therefore they will want to have a say in what goes on with the horse in the future. I mean, these agreements could go on for pages and pages, but we keep them short because otherwise people just look and think this is this is too much. But it really needs to deal with what happens in you know the worst eventualities what happens if one party needs to sell you know people have you know through covid people had different stages of their lives where money was tighter and so they had to sell owned horses because they couldn't afford it anymore um and so it just needs to deal with all of those eventualities insurance who pays for what with the higher level horses and the higher level riders it would be you know, who who actually gets the tickets because you get um, nominations for tickets when you're going to the Olympics. And of course, everybody wants those tickets. So the ownership agreement there will need to, to, to deal with who actually gets the allocation of tickets. Some some agreements deal with who take the trophies and the rugs home, um, prize money with the jumping horses more. 
Um, but they, they need to go into detail to cover everything. And usually people have thought it through and they'll come to me and say, this is what I think. And mm. then can you add everything else that needs to go in? How do you manage your relationship with your owner? Um, it's probably slightly different because the horse stays with her. He does. It's not, I don't have a training yard. So because a lot of the relationships, I think the horses go to the riders and the trainers mm. and the stable with them. So it makes it slightly different. She owns mm. the horse and I am just paid a retainer basically to ride him. So we have an agreement as to what's we worked out a monthly fee basically as to what's included within that. Yeah, we've discussed um, about the competition plans and who gets to decide on the competing, the training, etc. Um, I know there are provisions in place in her will for all of her horses and I'm involved in some of them. Um a lot of it was verbally discussed. We have we have a small amount on paper, but we don't have massive amounts. Um, yeah, we talk a lot about it. I have all of my own insurances for riding and stuff anyway mm. for other people's horses. It was different when I had a training yard. Then I had contracts in place if I had horses in for training livery and competing livery. But now I'm just freelance and ride the horses at people's places. Yeah, It's slightly different. But yeah, like you say, it's, it's have as much, more detail is better, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, because when it goes wrong between friends, it goes catastrophically yeah. wrong. I also co-own a horse with her. And again, we have a contract for that mm. with, you know, not only the amounts that are initially put in, but also who's responsible for what day to day, long term, if it comes to selling, who's responsible, first refusal, et cetera, et cetera. We have all of that in place. And do you take a percentage if she was to sell a horse that you don't own have an ownership yeah. element of do you take a percentage because of the schooling that you've put into them no she pays me for my work okay she also has unless she has no intention of selling right he wasn't he wasn't bought to be sold he was bought as her forever horse right so in i appreciate things can change circumstances can change but it's different to going into something i've ridden people in the past where they've bought horses for me to train for a period to then be sold on when they reach x level or mm-hmm. x age or whatever then that's different then you either discuss either you would be paid slightly less and take a percentage or you'd be paid more and not take a percentage basically very basically mm. but yeah what's the most high profile case you've worked on jackie um probably the utopia dispute after the london 2012 oh wow wow. so um just after it's all public knowledge so it's not something that i can't speak about um just after the 2012 olympic games carl received um, an injunction stopping him from moving competing selling utopia because um, the part owner of Utopia, who was called Sasha Stewart, um, had been stood at the Olympics waving the flag that she part owned the horse, and she was she'd been declared bankrupt in Ireland. Oh dear! So her trustees in bankruptcy looked and said, "Hang on, you haven't declared your ownership in this horse, so got an immediate injunction." And it took a long time to resolve because Carl really was the innocent party trying to protect the horse absolutely um and the horse ended up they it wasn't too long after um totalus had been sold and there were rumors that he'd sold for sort of 10 million pounds so the the bank who were very non-horsey people in ireland suddenly thought that because this horse had won two gold medals or one i don't know one gold medals yeah one team gold didn't it so mm. yes they decided that this horse was worth 10 million 
and the reality is that he, you know he wasn't the kind of breeding stallion that Tosin yeah, anyone also knows that he wasn't but no. I guess on paper they go yeah. oh yeah, yeah. They, they, and we immediately went back to them and said look you're barking up the wrong tree the horse isn't worth this but of course they didn't accept that so ultimately I'm sure you remember the horse went to auction mm. um and he was bought for and this is a few years ago now I think it's 2015 or 16 it finished I think he went for around 60,000 pounds Mm. Um, so the bank will have spent, I can't imagine how much they spent in four years of legal fees to, to recover £60,000. It was just craziness. Yeah, that is crazy. If you had one piece of advice that you would give our listeners, what would it be? Um, I, think, I think really it's to make sure you get all of your contracts in place. Mm. So whether you're buying a horse, selling a horse, if you're a selling agent... Um, if you're a livery yard owner, if you're a, a rider, whether you're a professional rider or an amateur and you're, you know, you need a contract in place. If you let someone use your arena, you can get a little one page disclaimer just to protect yeah. you. You don't yeah, need absolutely. solicitors to do it. The BHS have got a great website. They've got loads of documents on there and you can find lots of things online. Um, but I would say that those agreements are the start to avoiding litigation, disputes and heartache, which mm. is, which is, you know, I, I used to say on a Monday morning, I used to watch the clock, see what time it got to before somebody rang me up crying. Oh. Hey, I need some advice. We bought this horse and it's done this to my daughter over the weekend. It would always be children or I've my husband's run off and I need somebody to value my horse. It's just something where you just think, yeah. oh. <laughs> and you feel for them. Yes. How yeah. how can our listeners get in touch with you if they need your help? So my website is the, is the first start, really, because there's some helpful documents and advice on there. So it's um, equinelawuk.co.uk. Um, I run a law line. So I got to the point where I was being so bombarded with phone calls each day um, that I started to run a premium rate line. My husband calls it the porn line because there aren't any <laughs> premium rate lines out there. Um, and it, you can ring and you can pay and I'll sit and give you advice. I obviously have to conflict check first to ensure I'm not advising you against any of my clients. Mm. But I can give you advice cheaper than my hourly rate and I can just sit in for 15 minutes and usually set you in the right direction. And sometimes they'll say, actually, I need you to re represent me. And sometimes they'll say, great, I know where I stand. Now I can go and write a letter or do whatever I need to do. Um, so that that's quite good, particularly if you're in a small claim where you won't recover solicitor's costs. And I'll say, you know, don't go to the cost of instructing a solicitor. If you need some help, if you've got court forms come through and you're not sure what to do, ring the law line. Um, but the website's the best place to start. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. That's okay. Thank and you very much. Enjoy your Prosecco. Thank you. <laughs> okay, it's your turn to answer some questions now. Excellent. Lisa has lost her confidence, but is determined not to give up riding. She's Good. looking for easy pole work exercises that she can do in walk. That's really sensible, actually, isn't it? She's taking the pressure of herself there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so... Um, do you know what? One of the simplest things you can do is put out one pole. Right. Okay. So with one pole, you can obviously walk over it. Yeah. You can walk beside it. 
Yep. You can then do things like transitions beside it. So can you walk halt beside it, staying straight? If your horse tends to swing one way, put the pole on that side or vice versa. Could you walk halt rein back? Can you halt beside it and then do a half turn on the forehand and walk away? Can you walk, do a half walk pirouette beside it? You can, can you halt, you know, walk across it and halt with the pole in the middle? Amazing. Can you side pass along the pole like working equitation does? Yes. Or you can go next to the pole and then leg yield over it in walk, which is a great proprioception exercise. And you can actually do all of those in hand as well. Do you know, you could do an entire lesson with someone just doing that in walk, couldn't oh, you? Oh, yeah, and I'd probably give you cramp as well. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> That's really good advice. Um, I might actually try that. Yeah, it's a great one. Like, I've done a video a, a while ago about one pole, and I will actually do it again because I think people are like, oh, I haven't got time, or it's too, it's too much effort to put out lots of poles, mm. which I get. Like, no one is going to put out 18 poles just to ride one horse and put them away again. But you can genuinely do stuff with one pole, two poles, three poles and have so much you can do. So, yeah. I've often used one pole if I'm doing things in hand. Yeah. That's and doing, like you say, doing proprioception work. Yeah. Um, but I've never thought of just riding over one pole. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Paul is rehabbing a horse in long reins and has asked for lateral exercises to help keep the shoulder in check and general long reining exercises to keep a fizzy horse interested. Ooh. I mean, even those walk exercises. Yeah, would, would yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So you could play with the pole work and stuff. Obviously, you had a pair of poles as well. You could do the halts and the tram lines, etc., etc. Um, with fizzy horses, I would encourage more like smaller turns and circles. So when mm. I'm long lining, I tend to do a combination of like sending them around me on a circle, almost like double lunging, and then taking them through a change of rein, like on a serpentine. So you would get behind them and long line. Um, so yeah, I could do a kind of mixture of those sorts of things um lateral exercises i mean i would do like lateral work on long lines like leg yield shoulder ends mm-hmm. etc but particularly to keep the shoulder in check i'm not quite sure whether he means that the horse is falling out maybe then do the the shoulder in against the wall you might want to do it closer up yeah um so rather than being like you know like sort of a few meters behind on long lines you can come sometimes i would come right up so i would almost be standing at the horse's like wither at the girth so I'd have very short lines almost like two reins and do my lateral work there from close up which might be more helpful with a fizzy horse because if you're behind you obviously might be driving them forwards um yeah okay Kate said she's feeling really meh about riding at the moment and instead of half-heartedly doing it she wants to do something different to build her relationship with her horse what do you suggest pole work (laughs) drink a glass of prosecco do some pole work um I guess it would. it's difficult to answer without knowing what she currently does with her horse. Mm. So if she currently does dressage, let's say, then adding in some pole work might be different, might be enough to make it different. Yeah. If she already does pole work or say, she, I don't know, maybe she does a bit of everything, maybe she does some like eventing, then maybe just something as simple as saying, right, I'm actually going to do some in-hand work. I'm going to teach my horse to do some turn on the forehand, to do some rain back, to do some leg yield, to do all of that. So you're working on that relationship with the horse as mm. well. So I would maybe just kind of think about what haven't you tried with your horse or even looking at different disciplines, something like working equitation or, do you know, one of my clients went to one of these formation riding clinics. Oh, yes, there's the all steps formation. Yeah, there's ones. all sorts there's, of different ones. Yes, and, yeah. um, and she had a way of time. And her horse is quite lazy. Mm. And she, again, she's slightly lost her mojo a bit with it and everything else. And she had a great time and it was really social. And, you know, so maybe just look at what haven't you ever done with your horse that could be a bit different. Yeah. Get up early and take it to the beach. 
Yeah. You know, anything that's different go that just camp. makes you like go, oh, actually, that's what yeah. I want to do. Yeah. Or maybe it is like, okay, I've never done lateral work. I really want to teach my horse that. Go and book a lesson with someone and learn to do that mm. and say that's what you want to learn to do. It doesn't have to be something wild that's different. You know, it could yes. be something quite simple. Yeah. But yeah, I think just find something different to do. Yeah. Anonymous asks for pole work exercises to help transitions. So any pole work is going to help transitions because it's going to engage the horse's hind leg. So it's going to help with the transition. So um, there's two ways of basically doing it. So you either do your transitions between poles. So you use the poles for locations and straightness. So, for example, riding a trot canter strike off on a 20-metre circle between a pair of poles that are placed um, across the centre line, so parallel to the short yeah. sides, would give you the location and making sure the horse doesn't fall in or out in the transition. You could also then do something like a canter-trot canter, so you make the downwards before the poles, you trot between the poles, the upwards, the other side of it. Or you do the transitions over the poles, either side of the poles, so you use the poles for engagement. So in that case, rather than going between the poles and having the poles parallel to the short side, you turn them round, you have the poles either side of the centre line parallel to the long side. So you'd maybe trot over the poles and then make your canter strike off afterwards when the horse is engaged. Or you'd make your downwards just before, then the poles would help to bring the horse forwards into a balanced trot and the poles obviously regulate the striding. Um, so it depends what transitions you want to work on as to what pole layout you might do. If you have either a triangle or a square of the three metre poles, then kind of opens you up because you can ride those in walk, trot or canter. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to work on a simple change, it would work or on a canter, trot, canter, it would work or simply on a, a upwards or downwards. Okay. Millie asks, how do you deal with the disappointment of low scores if you feel you deserved better or a performance that you feel wasn't your best? I feel so deflated sometimes after competing. Prosecco. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all the Prosecco. Um, I mean, I think I think as, as riders, and particularly as the dressage, we're generally in the same boat and that I know I'm my worst critic. Yes. So it's really easy to be disappointed and then I think sometimes just a bit of time and reflect on it. If you've got a video, watch it back. You know, you might come out and think, oh, my God, that transition was awful, blah, mm. blah, blah. And you watch the video and you go, actually, okay, maybe it wasn't my best, but actually there were some good elements. It was really accurate or it was actually really forwards mm. or actually the horse reacted when I wanted them to, but next time I want to do X, Y, Z, whatever. So try and find the positives in it. And sometimes just that time and reflection from the instant disappointment um, is is a really good thing. There's sort of two parts to that because she said if you're disappointed in your scores or if you're disappointed in your performance. Yes. So you can be really pleased with your performance and disappointed in your score. And I quite often have clients like they'll ring up and they'll be like, oh, I got such and such and you know, I thought it went really well and blah, blah. And I'm like, right, forget about the score. Tell me, how did you feel at the end of your test? Were you pleased with it? Yeah. Because if you were, then that's still a positive thing. You've got to go on that. Because the judge didn't agree is sort of near the hill or there at that moment. Yes, to do well at dressage, we have to have the judge agree and give us the marks. But you might come out and have been really pleased because actually you didn't break in your canter. Yes. Maybe it was still above the bit, so you still got a five or a six for it. But if you didn't break in it, and that might be progress for you, it doesn't necessarily reflect on the score. And let's face it, judges are humans. They're they humans, are, and they also don't know your journey. No, and they are judging against a scale. Yes. They are judging against a scale of excellent. Mm. And so, you know, they can't, they're, they're meant to judge against the scale with no 
predisposition to anything but we all have things that we like and things that we like i'm gonna go in i'm gonna gravitate towards a welsh horse a spanish horse over a thoroughbred or an arab yeah because that's my type of horse yeah and as much as you would try your best to be completely you know non-biased when you're judging of course you're gonna have a bias because we're people yeah so you know you have to kind of at some point come out and go right i'm actually happy with what i did or with how my horse went I'm frustrated the judge didn't agree. Then go and look at what is it? Because actually you might think, oh, well, that was, it was, you know, it was really nice on the bit. It was a really nice circle. And the judge goes, it was 18 metres. Well, then that's your badge. You need to go and practice 50 metre circles. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. or 20, whatever it was. If it's not accurate, they might not have pulled you up. They might agree. They might have been, it was lovely in the frame, lovely in the content. And actually some of the comments are, yep, super transition, lovely balance, not accurate. Yes. You know, so they might not necessarily, although all you see is a six, mm. they might not be saying it was bad. It's just that there was something missing because as often, particularly at the lower levels, there's a lot of things encompassed in one mark. Yes. Um, if you're at a show and you come out and you, you know, you're really happy with it and you see the score and you get the sheet and you really don't understand a judge's comment, if the judge is still there, if you walk up to them and politely say, um, could I ask you a question? Most judges are really, really happy to talk to you. And they want to give you the they feedback. They want to explain. Like, they want to help you. Yes, yes. As long as you're polite about it, you know, and approach them. Obviously, sometimes they are busy and they're rushing off. They're like, you know, like the rest of us, they've got lives or they're getting mm. another t- test or something. But most of the time, they're really happy to give you feedback on it. And often judges are also trainers. Exactly. So they're very so good at explaining to, it. And when they're judging, their job isn't to train. They're not to tell. They're not meant to tell you why or what to do about it. They're just meant to tell you that transition yeah. wasn't. But, but that chat in the car park afterwards, they can. They, give you they some often will. Input and... I remember being told you by riding just a very accurate test, you have more chance of getting a high score because otherwise, you know, like you say, if your fifteen meter circle is an eighteen meter circle, you're effectively throwing marks away. There. The thing is, you could be on the best quads you could be on a trot for a 10 mm. if your circle is not 50 meters you're still not going to get more than a 6.5 or a 7 for it sure or you can ride a deathly accurate circle and if your trot's still a, a, a four because it keeps breaking up to canter and hopping you're still not going to get a better mark for it you've got to have that combination of the two yes. so then the other part to watch that is if you feel like you're disappointed in your own performance and what you've done that's slightly trickier that's then about knowing your own kind of sports psychology and learning and mentally mm. and what is it that you need to do to work on it. So are you justifiably disappointed in it? Like I said, go back, look at the video if there is one, think about it a bit more. Did you actually do your best given the circumstances, mm. just blowing a gale or the horse was quite hot or, you know, whatever? So first of all, are you justifiably disappointed? Because I'll come out and be disappointed and then I'll go back and be like, actually, to be fair, yes. I'm actually not disappointed yes. in the grand scheme of things, yeah. in the big picture. If you are justifiably disappointed, then put a plan in place to work on it. Do you need to get some different training? Do you need to go and do some test riding? Do you need to go and try and do the clinic with the judge? Do you just need to get your horse out to a few more venues so that you can get it a bit more rideable in the arena? Yeah, a little bit more relaxed. You know, yeah. try and put a plan in place do you need to go and do some sports psychology or something to work on your performance in there? Mm. But, you know, find something to put a plan in place so that next time you can come out and be like, okay, this happened, but actually I know what I'm going to go and do about it is this, this and this. Yeah. Right. Are you ready? Go on then. Fail of the week. Fail of the week. Well, it's a bit of a boring one. Oh, don't bore us. (laughs) (laughs) But... You know when you're out hacking 
Mm. And you take your gloves off. Oh, don't do that. To do so. so I take my gloves off to blow my nose. I've got a cold. You can probably hear I'm quite like snuffly. Took my gloves off to blow my nose and then had that fumbling moment and dropped my glove. Oh, no. And I'm in the middle of the field. Who are you riding? Igloo. Oh, no, that's like you're up in the clouds. Yeah, 17 hands. So I was like, do I A, ride back and walk back on foot or take the quad, but walk back on foot? Probably not because it's really cold and I want my glove. Do I B, get off? Yep, good idea, get my glove. But then how do I get back on? <laughs> Luckily, although Igloo is 17 hands, he is very well behaved. So I did get off. I did get my glove and then dragged him to the nearest like ditch and I put him in a ditch very inelegantly scrapple back on. I'm impressed you were able to get back on without a mountain block. I don't yeah. think I could even get on 12-2 Clover without a I mountain mean, there block. I mean, he was in a ditch. There was a bit of a tree stump. It was, wasn't very elegant. But yeah, we got back on. And yes, I managed to not take my gloves off again after that. <laughs> And your training tip of the week. Training tip of the week. So one of the things that um, quite often get asked about, a lot of people struggle with is walk Mm -hmm. and keeping the walk like relaxed and forwards and how to get like um, a clear free walk or extended walk. So first of all, it's knowing the difference between a free walk and an extended walk. So in an extended walk, the horse's neck should go out along the line of their wither. So if you draw a horizontal line from their wither, the neck should be along that line Mm -hmm. with the nose out to the vertical. In a free walk, the neck should be below that line with the nose out to the vertical. In both of them, they should overtrack significantly more than in the medium walk. Okay? Obviously, we want to show relaxation. Obviously, we need to remain in walk. So one of the best ways to encourage the horse to take their neck forwards and down, because a lot of horses either take it forwards but poke their nose and stick their ears up in the air and look around, or they take it down but they kind of curl up and get a bit stuck down there. So getting that balance in between the two... So one of the ways that I was taught years and years and years ago was to think about moving your shoulders and actually giving your hands in time with their shoulders. Right. So sometimes I will literally touch their neck in time with the shoulders. When the right shoulder goes forward, touch the right hand side, left shoulder, left hand side. Sounds easier than it is. Bit, pat your head, rub your tummy, coordination. Mm, Yeah, I'm just thinking that probably wouldn't work for me. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't doesn't need to be as big as that. Initially, if you start off and you literally touch the neck and it can be a bit smaller, Mm. but that releasing forwards within the motion, it really encourages them to stretch forward and find it. Okay. And I guess actually it's something you could do on the buckle if you're out hacking. Yeah, and like I quite often do it. So when I first start, I do it. When I have a break, I try not to. I have a break where I let them have a, have a loose rein completely. Mm. And then particularly as they were like normal with the younger horse, I do a lot of like medium walk, free walk, medium walk, free walk. Sometimes I do it on a circle, sometimes across a diagonal and ride a few of those lines, pick him up, put him down. The same at the end when I cool off. Yeah. I try and do a bit of that, like five minutes of that and then go out for a walk to cool off. Just so that I'm practicing it. Because otherwise it's really easy to walk them on long rein. And they pick them up and work. And yes. you go to do a test and they're like, what? Yeah. Stretch down, pick back up again, huh? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Absolutely. So yeah, you make really important to practice it. Fabulous advice as always. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to Jackie for giving us such great insight into equine law. Make sure that you stay up to date with Poles, PF and Prosecco by keeping an eye on Tanya's social media. You can do this by following Inspire Dressage Official on Facebook and Inspire underscore Dressage on Instagram. Tanya's book, The Polework Journal, with 54 polework sessions for you to try, is available at horseandrideruk.com slash shop for just £19.99. And you can get a signed copy and meet Tanya at the National Equine Show on the 2nd and 3rd of March. As always, we're keen to hear your training and equine lifestyle questions and we'd love your recommendations on which Prosecco to try next. Get in touch. Our email again is polesandprosecco at yahoo.com and you can also leave us a Q&A or voice note on Spotify. Thanks for your company. Until next time. 
Bye-bye.